All right, Grace Community Church, we are about to begin together in the Gospel of Matthew. So you can go ahead and flip to Matthew chapter 1. I actually want to begin by reading something to you from Hebrews chapter 1. No pressure to flip there, but listen to God's word. Hebrews chapter 1, this is verse 1 and 2. Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. It's a beautiful verse. Long ago and many times and many ways. Our God is not a silent God. Our God is a God that spoke. A God that reveals himself and reveals his will. And it says there that God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Speaking about those Old Testament prophets. We're talking about the word of God from Abraham and Moses and on up through Isaiah all the way to Malachi, our Old Testament. In times past, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And then verse 2 says, But in these last days, it's the days we live in, He has spoken to us by His Son. By His Son. Many would argue that that preposition instead of by his his son should be in son. Almost like a language that God speaks. That in past times God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he's spoken in son. It's like the ultimate communication and language of God is look at Jesus. Which fits with John 1 which says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the Word was God. And John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. That we hear from God ultimately by looking at the Son. So God spoke gloriously through the prophets. But in these last days it says He's spoken by His Son. Now I want to read an illustration. This is from A.W. Pink's commentary on Hebrews, an old commentary. And this is his description of that truth. He says, Beautiful is the night in which the moon and the stars of prophecy and types are shining. But when the sun arises, then we forget the hours of watchfulness and expectancy. And in the clear, joyous light of day, there is revealed to us the reality and substance of the eternal and heavenly sanctuary. So he compares it to like the beautiful. We read those prophets of old. We read our Old Testament. And it's beautiful, glorious communication from God. Like seeing the stars and the moon and the night skies. Beautiful from God. And yet the sun comes. The sun comes. The S-U-N, the sun rises and brings light, ultimate light. This is 
good picture of Hebrews chapter 1. In these last, day, he is, these last days, he spoke unto us in his Son. This was his, A.W. Pink's practical application to that was this, this right here. He said, let us reread the four Gospels with this glorious truth before us. So let's read, he says, reread the four Gospels with this glorious truth before us. And so we're about to enter into a time as a church. We're walking through the first of the Gospels together, the Gospel of Matthew. Now, just some introductory things here. What is a Gospel? We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four Gospels in our New Testament. What is a Gospel? Some have called these Gospels biographies of Jesus. Biographies of Jesus. But is that, is that a good description? Are these Gospels uh, comprehensive historical biographies of Jesus? Is that, what, is, that what the, is that what they are? And I would argue that they're not comprehensive. And I would argue that from one of the Gospels, John chapter 20, listen to this in verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs... In the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. These Gospels are not comprehensive. Jesus did many other glorious things that are actually not in the book. But, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And there's a sense in which all the Gospels, all four of the Gospels, are written for that purpose. That we might see a portrait of Christ and believe in Him, believe in the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in His name. Not necessarily comprehensive, but it is a portrait of Jesus. Is it a historical biography? It, it is historical, no doubt. It's history here. And it is biographical, there's no doubt about that. But if you look at the structure of these Gospels, you realize that it's too purposeful to just be laying out the details of someone's life as we typically think of in a historical biography. These aren't just random details. All the details that they could find about Jesus' life put into a book. The structure of these Gospels are too purposeful for that. One example would be the Gospel of John. And we'll get to Matthew in a minute. But one, one example would be the Gospel of John. You read all of the Gospel of John. It's 21 chapters. But listen, the last half of the whole book from chapter 11 to chapter 21 is about the last week of Jesus' life. And that's not structured like any historical biography that we, that we tend to read. And so they're structured in such a way, this purposeful, this, this is gospel of Jesus. It means, gospel means good news. It's good news about this Christ structured in such a way that's meant to impact us, give us a beautiful portrait of him and cause us to follow him. And believe in Him, to trust Him. The Gospels of Jesus. So we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll be here for the next several months. And I want to, I want to encourage you to dig into the Gospel of Matthew with us. Don't waste this. We're going to meet up every week, God willing, and we'll be in the Gospel of Matthew together again and again and again. Don't waste that time. Read it on your own. Dig in on your own. Memorize some verses from Matthew on your own. Read it with your family. 
Get your heart prepared. Know what passage is coming and read it before, before the Lord's day arrives. But take advantage of us being, us being in the Gospel of Matthew together. Now, now, just a few details before we get into the first passage and read the first passage in the Gospel of Matthew. Just a few details. The author of Matthew is Matthew. I dug deep for that one. Now, actually, you do have to dig a little, and, and you realize from the, the earliest church history, and we're talking about early church history, as in like disciples of the Apostle John type early church history, it's been affirmed that this is a gospel from Matthew. Matthew was an ordinary man. He was a tax collector. Uh, he, he was seen as a, 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 one of those wicked, horrible tax collectors that everyone hated. And yet Jesus called him to be his disciple. And one of Matthew's first moves we're going to find out is to throw a party where he brings together all these tax collectors together to see and hear from Jesus himself. So he's an ordinary man. At the same time, he's an extraordinary man. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. This, this office of being an apostle of Christ is something that Jesus called them into, and it's a special office that does not exist today. The, the requirements for being a, an apostle in God's Word was you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, you had to have the signs of an apostle that God was affirming by miraculous acts that you really are an apostle. I mean, these apostles were walking around and people were being healed by walking into their shadow. Their names are written on the 12 foundations of heaven according to Revelation. This is a special position. In the early church, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And we do the same thing today because those apostles wrote things down. And we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching through the written words of God. So he's, a, he's an ordinary man saved by Christ, and yet he's extraordinary and that he's an apostle has written an account of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, a little bit about, again, just a few de details here. A little bit about structure. As you think about the structure of this book, let me just say a few things. You have an introduction in chapters 1 through 3 of Matthew where we see his birth. But it's not any birth. This is the birth as an incarnation that God becomes flesh. And then we see men come, wise men, magi come, and they bow down to a little child and they worship him. And we see John the Baptist as, as Jesus' herald because he's a king and he heralds the coming of the king. And we see God the Father the moment that Jesus is baptized saying, that's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is our introduction in Matthew 1 through 3. And the middle portion, the large middle portion of Matthew can be broken up from chapter 4 to chapter 25. It can be broken up into five sections. And these five sections in the book of Matthew are five major teaching blocks that you can find scattered throughout the book of Matthew. And so what you're going to find in the structure here is after you get through that introduction, starting in chapter 4, you've got a little narrative, a little story that's there, and then you've got a big block of teaching. And you have another narrative, and then you have a big block of teaching. You have another narrative and a big block of teaching. This happens five times. And I want to I show you a, a repetition of, uh, that shows why we think of it this way. So go to, if you look at chapter 7, just glance at Matthew chapter 7. So this is at the very end, Matthew chapter 7. 
Verse 28. This is at the very end of the very first teaching block, which, which is often called the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7. And at the very end, this is the phrase that gets repeated over and over again at the end of every teaching block. It says this, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, and it goes on, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So when Jesus had finished these sayings. So you have some narrative, and then you've got this teaching block, okay? Next teaching block is chapter 10. Go to chapter 10. You've got that second teaching block there right after some narrative. In chapter 11, verse 1. Glance at it. It's a repetition. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples. There it is again. When Jesus had finished his sayings. When Jesus had, when Jesus had finished instructing his disciples. Next teaching block is Matthew chapter 13. And he teaches in Matthew 13. Third teaching block. And look at verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables. Are you catching this repetition? When Jesus had finished these parables. Right, you go to Matthew chapter 18. That's your fourth teaching block. And at the end of that fourth teaching block, chapter 19. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings. And then one more time, you move forward. The fifth teaching block, Matthew 23 through 25. So 23, 24, 25. And right at the end of that, chapter 26, verse 1 says it again. When Jesus had finished all these sayings. And so what you have as a way to structure it is you've got narrative teaching block. Narrative teaching block. And I think we're going to see as we go on that there's even connections between these narratives that are laid out and what Jesus teaches in these five major, these five major teaching blocks. And of course, in Matthew, you've got a conclusion at the end, chapter 26 through 28, where we see the death of Jesus, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, and, and then we see Christ give his final commission to his people but if you go back to chapter one if you're not there go back to chapter one we're focusing our attention today on this opening genealogy chapter one verse one through 17 is the opening genealogy now does it surprise you does it surprise you that you know we're talking about the pro God spoke to the prophets of old, but in these last days, he spoke it through his son. And the first words that we get in our New Testament, we get a genealogy. Raise your hand if you ever skipped it before. I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hand. Shame on you, Seth. I'm just, kidding. <laughs> just kidding, brother. So I want you to think about this genealogy. Does it surprise you that it starts with a genealogy? Why? Why? Why does it start? With the genealogy. Now I want us to understand the importance of genealogies. Uh, literally going all the way back to Genesis. So you can go back to Genesis uh, chapter 5. And Genesis chapter 10, uh, 10 and 11. You could go on and just look through Genesis. And through the rest of the Old Testament. And you realize man there is some significance. In these genealogies. You go to 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 9. You've got a massive genealogy. There's some sort of importance here. What is it? And what we see from our Old Testament. Is there's some connection there's some connection between the promises that God gives, the messianic expectation that is to come, and these genealogies. There's promises, for example, to Abraham. Abraham, in your seed or in your lineage, it's coming this Christ that's going to bless all the nations. 
And so we understand that because of these promises, because of this messianic expectation through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Judah, and through the people of Israel, that there's a significance to these genealogies. But I would go as far as to say that even just to the Jewish mind, just the Jewish mind that might not even be thinking about that, there was a significance here when the book of Matthew was written. When Jesus walked on earth, a lot of you have heard about Josephus. Josephus is a Jewish historian of the first century. You know, he, he not, wasn't a Christian, but he writes things as a Jewish historian about Jesus. And it says that when, when Josephus wrote his autobiography, he began his autobiography with, uh, with his own genealogy. So from Genesis to Josephus, there's a significance, okay? A Jewish, in a Jewish mind, there's a significance to these genealogies. And that's how the book of Matthew here begins. And we're about to dig into that. Now, let me give you two, just two technical points, okay? And then one really important point before we dig in and read our passage. So two technical points, one really important point. Technical point number one is this, is this genealogy is a selective genealogy, not a comprehensive genealogy. And so what I mean is, is when it says, you know, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of, that every, every point in that genealogy is not a direct father to son, but it is a descendant. You might have, he fathered as in he grandfathered or he great-grandfathered. So, so what happens in your first section and what we're about to read is it stays right there on point from Abraham to David. And then you get David and the, and the kings that came from David in that second section. And some of those kings aren't mentioned. So it's not a comprehensive olive, but it's a selective. He's grabbing certain places to show you the connection from Abraham to Jesus. From Abraham through David to Jesus. Now it takes me to my second technical point. And that technical point is what does verse 17 mean? As far as the numbers go. Look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Okay, so, so here's the question. It's obviously not saying that there was only 14 generations in each one of these gaps. There wasn't that first gap from Abraham to David, but not only 14, but he selected out 14 generations to show us to make the connection. And so the, the technical question is why? Why, if, it's, if he's selecting this out, why does he pick the number 14? Why does there seem to be a focus on this number 14 here? And so I didn't know, so I started digging around and I started you know, reading other commentaries and saying, man, what's up with this focus on the number 14? And the first commentary I read was from Matthew Poole. And Matthew Poole said this. He, Matthew, reduceth our Savior's progenitors to 14 in each period of the Jewish state for reasons which we cannot fathom. <laughs> so, you know, suffice to say, I was disappointed. And so I kept reading. I didn't give up with... Uh, his negativity. 
And I started reading and some people, there's different reasons that people give for this 14 number. Some people say it's a, a mnemonic device, a, a device to help you memorize it. That from Abraham to David, you do have 14. And, and, and those are really important in Genesis through the history. And then when you get into that next section, he makes that 14. He gets to the next section, makes that 14 too, to help people memorize and get these things that might not have uh, leather-bound Bibles like we all have. So some people land there. Some people land on, um, this is biblical numerology. Now, I think it's unlikely, but it's interesting, and people do take this point. Uh, biblical numerology, that if you, do, if you assign a number to each one of these Hebrew letters, right? And if you do that with David, the number comes out to be 14. And he's the 14th. Uh, he's the 14th one in this line, mentioned in this line. And so, and so they would say this, this number 14 is a focus on David. And surely this genealogy does focus on David. And like I said, that's interesting. But I would land on anything with biblical numerology being unlikely. Uh, some people would say that he selected these particular ones, you know, and left out certain others to make it really clear that this is a royal line. That we're, this is not any line that's being traced of Jesus, but the line from Abraham to King David. And David's sons, there was a king and a king and a king and a king. And then deportation to Babylon when the kingdom was lost. And so there's a focus in this section of a royal lineage. Now that still doesn't, unless it's for memory reasons, doesn't explain why the number 14. But, but there you go. If you came to understand that verse, I'm sorry. Let me give you the clear point. Let me give you the really clear point. The really clear point is this. Is this genealogy is to help us make the connection that Jesus is the Christ. That's the focus, that He really is the Christ. We see it in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We see it in verse 17, it ends with, to Christ. From Babylon to Christ. So this is to show us that he's a Christ. Well, what does it mean? What does this word Christ mean? It's not Jesus' last name. It's not just a surname. What is it? What does the word Christ mean? When you think of Christ, it's that one that's been promised in the Old Testament. It's the one that was promised to come from Adam and Eve and promised to come from Abraham. Promised to come from Isaac and Jacob and Judah. That promised one that all of the Old Testament has you expecting that he's going to come. And in the day that Jesus walked on earth, there was, there was an expectation that the Christ would come. And Matthew writes this gospel, and this genealogy is meant, it's meant to make us see He is the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's that Messiah that Daniel spoke about, the prophet of old. He's the Christ. Now, this would have been a really radical claim. I want you to imagine, if you, can, if you can, how radical this claim would have been. Now, to show you that, I want to read this to you really quick. Matthew 26. I'm going to read verse 63 through 67. And listen to how radical it would be if somebody claims to be the Christ. Verse 63 says this. But Jesus remained silent. They're accusing him of all kind of stuff. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so, 
But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Are you the Christ? In the poetic way, Jesus says, yep. Verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and says, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Radical claim to claim to be the Christ. It goes on to say, then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? So this genealogy is making a radical powerful claim that Jesus is this Christ. So let's let's read our passage. Now this is beautiful. This is God willing. This is the very first uh, first passage we're going to read as we as a church read through all of this gospel together. So let's lean in and read chapter 1 verse 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Neshon, and Neshon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltil, and Shiltil, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Iliad, and Iliad the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these words. Thank you for these words. And God, I pray that you would help us as we consider what this genealogy, Lord, this God-breathed genealogy, breathed out by you for our good and for your glory. Lord, as we discover what it says about our Christ, our Savior, 
God, help us, to, help us to have hearts that worship right now. Hearts that see you, Lord. Open our eyes, the eyes of our heart, to see you high and lifted up in your glory. Thank you for the gospel of Matthew. Lord, I pray that you would draw us nearer to Christ through this gospel. And over the next several months, Lord, that our hearts would be nearer to Christ. That we'd have more, more clear and higher views of Jesus. That you would meet with us in these words. Help us, Lord, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Now here's the question. What kind of Christ is being revealed to us in this genealogy? What sort of Christ is being revealed in this gene genealogy? And I want to give you five descriptions of Christ from this genealogy. Number one, Christ is the climax of world history. He's the climax of world history. This gospel begins in verse 1 with this phrase, the book of the genealogy. You see it there? The book of the genealogy. Now that phrase is two Greek words. In the first Greek word, we get our word Bible from. In the second Greek word, we get our word Genesis from. So Bible Genesis or book of Genesis. So Matthew literally begins with this phrase, the book of Genesis. It's how it begins. Now I want you to think, this phrase, the book of Genesis, where is it supposed to draw your mind? You should say, well, that's obvious. Let me, let me mention this to you. Where does it draw your mind? The, the Septuagint, which is the, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses this phrase early on several times in the book of Genesis. And it uses this phrase early on before there was a Jewish people. Okay, so your mind needs to go back there. So it's, it's like when you read the Gospel of John, it begins like this. In the beginning was the Word. And where's that phrase supposed to take your mind? John 1.1, in the beginning. And it drives your mind back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we have a similar thing happen here. We have book of Genesis and a phrase that's in, our, in the, the Greek version of our Old Testament. This should drive your mind back there. So I want you to think about this for just a minute. This is from a, a, a commentary that I read. It says, its use, or this phrase's use here deliberately echoes the opening chapters of Genesis. So this stands as a reminder to us of what? That from the beginning of creation, Jesus is the climax of it all. These first two words tell us Jesus is the climax of all of world history. Now, think about your world history class growing up. Were you taught that? You sat in school and you were learning world history. And did they teach you that all of it was moving toward a climax in Christ? Parents and grandparents, shame on us if we don't give that to our children. As we teach them world history, that it's all going to be fulfilled in Christ. That it's all moving towards His glory ultimately. Ultimately toward Him. All of history, B.C., points to Christ, all of history AD flows from Christ. Jesus is the center. Jesus is the focal point. This tells, genealogy tells us that we're not the focal point, not you, not me, not Grace Community Church, not America. That's not the center. Jesus is at the very center, at the very focal point of all of world history. 
We do good to remember that. Number two, Christ is the climax not just of world history, but of Jewish history. Jesus is the, the Christ is the climax of Jewish history. Or another way you can say this is he's the fulfillment. So where do you learn about Jewish history? You learn about it in your Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. Now notice how this genealogy begins with Abraham. There's a genealogy in the Gospel of Luke that actually goes all the way back to Adam. But right here, Matthew begins with Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, the father of Israel. So it begins with Abraham, and then it walks through Jewish history name by name by name. And most of these names are recorded for us in our Old Testament. So you, you imagine as, as a, a Jewish mind reading through this genealogy like we just did. Okay? Now, now, you know, for some of us, the only thing on our mind might have been, is he pronouncing those names right? Okay? But what's on their mind as is, is a Jewish mind or someone that understands their Old Testament, what's on their mind as they're reading through this genealogy? What's on their mind? Familiar stories? Familiar promises, messianic promises, messianic expectations are flowing out as they're reading through this little overview of history, of Jewish history, from Abraham all the way up to Christ. And so what we learn in this genealogy is Jesus is the reason for it all. Now, Jesus said over in John 8, he said, before Abraham was, I am. And just saying that about Abraham offended everybody. And this genealogy is saying that Abraham exists because of Jesus. Abraham and all of his lineage and the people of Israel and all of Jewish history, it climaxes in Christ. He's the fulfillment of all of it. So here's what this tells us. Christianity was not the backup plan to Israel. Christianity is the true continuation of the Old Testament. It's not like, you know, God said, I'm going to try this with these people of Israel. Oh, man, it didn't work out. Let me, let me go elsewhere. Jesus is not a backup plan. It's not, let me give my law to Israel. Hopefully they'll do good. Man, they didn't do good. I better give them Jesus. He's not a backup plan. He's always been the reason. The reason for Israel, the reason for the Jewish people, it's always been Christ. It's always been leading up to him. Jesus is the fulfillment of of Jewish history. One commentator said this, the central theme of Matthew's gospel is fulfillment. The central theme of this gospel is fulfillment. And we see that as we see this genealogy and Jesus fulfilling all of this Old Testament, okay? We have a fulfillment theme that you can trace throughout Matthew. There's a fulfillment theme that you can Traced throughout Matthew. Now you get it from a repetitive phrase again. Listen to this repetitive phrase. I'm going to read all of them. I'm not going to read all of them because it's a ton of them. But listen to this. Chapter 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Look at verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Look at verse 23. 
so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And it goes on and on and on throughout Matthew. I'm not going to read them all for time's sake. But there's a fulfillment theme that Jesus, the one from Abraham and all the Jewish history climaxing in him, that, that he is fulfilling things in your Old Testament. Not to mention that this, there's other verses that don't use that repetitive phrase, but they say similar things like Jesus in Matthew 5 says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Or the fact that 61 Old Testament quotes are in the gospel of Matthew more than any other gospel. He's fulfilling the Old Testament. He's the climax of all of Jewish history. Now, I want you to try to imagine the magnitude of that claim. Okay, I'm making that claim. He's the climax of all of Jewish history. But just try to get in your heart and your mind how big of a deal that is. Okay, try to get into, you know, a a first century Jew. Try to get into his skin for a minute. You're a first century Jew. And all that you have ever read in those scrolls, all that you have ever heard read, all that you have ever been taught in those synagogues about the scriptures, All the stories that you can recount. All the promises that you memorized as a child. Every Passover meal you celebrated with your family. Every trip you took back to Jerusalem for feasts and festivals and to offer sacrifices to God. Every single Sabbath. Your circumcision. And even the way you prepare and eat your food. And somebody says, that man right there, all of it's fulfilled in him. All of it climaxes. The reason for it all is that man, Jesus Christ. This is a massive claim. Third, the Christ is the long-awaited king of the Jews. The Christ is the long-awaited king of the Jews. Now, throughout Matthew, again, talking about themes in Matthew, you have this fulfillment theme. We also have a king or a kingdom theme throughout Matthew. A king or a kingdom theme. John MacArthur said this, All other historical and theological themes in this book revolve around this one, Jesus is king. Now, I say that. There's a kingdom theme throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Not just because MacArthur says it. But because of things like this, there's kingdom language or kingdom uh, language that show these kingdom themes throughout the gospel. So let me give some of those words. The word Christ, as we've already seen three times in our genealogy, the word Christ is 17 times throughout Matthew. Now, that is a kingdom word, a king word. We'll see that in the next passage in in Matthew chapter 2 when we get there to where the wise men come in and they say, They say to Herod, show us where the king of Israel is to be born. Show us where the king is to be born. And Herod turns to the scribes and the elders and says, hey, look up in the scriptures where the Christ is to be born. Christ and king. Christ is, the Christ was expected to be a king. Another word, kingdom. That word kingdom is used 46 times in the book of Matthew. 32 times is the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And that phrase is used nowhere else. Just Matthew, 32 times. 
king, kingdom of heaven. Another phrase that's a, that's a kingdom phrase repeated again and again is the son of David. Jesus is referred to as the son of David. Now, why would, you know, when the blind man says, son of David, have mercy on me. Why would son of David have kingdom significance? Why would it make you think of a king, the king of David? Well, let me give you a few verses for that. In 1 Chronicles, God gives this promise to David. These were the covenant God made with King David. I'm going to read 1 Chronicles chapter 17. And I want to read verse 11 through 15. Listen to this. When your days are fulfilled, David... Now listen up, because the Psalms speak about this promise over and over and over again. Listen to it. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. David's son will have an established kingdom. He shall build a house for me, I will establish his throne forever. This son of David is going to have a throne. He's going to be king forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. Forever it says. And his throne shall be established forever. There's a king coming from David who's going to have a throne that is established forever. When you read the book of Matthew and you hear son of David, son of David, son of David, you should be thinking of that one that's going to sit on the throne and he's going to sit there forever. You see, the prophets of old picked up on this. Let me read just a couple verses. Isaiah Chapter 9, it's a very popular verse, but I wonder if you saw the son of David there. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We hear it every Christmas, don't we? Do you remember this part? And the government should be upon his shoulder. That's kingdom language. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, that's kingdom language, and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. This son, this child that would be born would be a son of David. He would sit on David's throne. Listen to this verse from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37. Now I want you to think about the timing of this. In Ezekiel 37, we've had David and his son Solomon. They've been kings. His son Rehoboam. And it keeps going. You've got the sons of David being king, king, king. But now Nebuchadnezzar came in and took them over and they were taken captive to Babylon. There is no king. At least it seems like there is no king. And that's when Ezekiel makes this prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd and they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Ezekiel, David's dead. 
David, don't you know David's dead? He can't be king. He's still picking up on this theme that to David was promised a son that would reign as king forever. And we come to Matthew and we've got the Christ. We've got the kingdom. And we've got the son of David that will reign on that throne forever. There's a kingdom theme found throughout the gospel of Matthew. Now, as you think about this kingdom theme, how does this relate to our genealogy? So if you're back in Matthew 1. It relates to our genealogy because we've got the Christ three times here. Verse 1, the Christ. Verse 16, the Christ. Verse 17, the Christ, which we've already established as kingdom language. But not only that, you look at verse 1 again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, first name, the son of David. The son of David. And there's a focus here on David. As you read through it carefully, you realize it goes from Abraham to David. And it specifies David the king. The king. And not only does it end on David, but then the next section begins with David from David and it goes on through the rest of the genealogy. He's repeated. Then you go to verse 17 and, and it's like everything centers around David. There's a focus in our genealogy of king, the king that comes from David. So this genealogy communicates the long awaited king of the Jews. This is a royal lineage. Now, how should the Jewish people respond to this? Or, or how, how should they have responded to this? Let me give you a verse about how they should have responded. Zechariah 9.9 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble. And mounted on a donkey. How should they have responded to the coming of their king? Shout aloud and rejoice your king. Behold your king has come. And we know from the book of Acts that many of them did just that. A remnant of them at least did just that. In the church of Jerusalem and many other places. So Jesus is the king of the Jews. But what has that got to do with us? We're not the Jewish people, are we? We're not from Israel. What does this have to do with us? With Zechariah 9, what I just read to you, 9, 9, it goes on to say in verse 10, listen to this. His rule, that Jewish king, rejoice, O daughter of Jerusalem, your king, that Jewish king, it says this. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That Jewish king will rule to the ends of the earth. All Gentiles and all nations including us. So that brings me to the fourth. Fourth description we see of the Christ. In this genealogy is that the Christ. Is the king of the nations. The Christ is the king of the nations. Now. The Old Testament has been really clear. You read through your Old Testament. It's really clear. That that Jewish king was prophesied to rule all the world, all the nations. Let me give you a verse on that. In the prophet Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7. A sweet promise about this coming Messiah. Listen to what it says. Verse 13, Daniel seven thirteen. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
That's what Jesus called Himself often, the Son of Man. There came came one like a Son of Man, and He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him, that Son of Man, to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Kingdom of who? Just the nation of Israel? It says that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that will not be destroyed. And this is just one of many places in your Old Testament that says that that king of the Jews is going to be the king of the nations. That king of the Jews will be the king of the whole world. And so again, we see that the nations and God's word were not plan B. It wasn't, let's try this thing with Israel. Man, they failed. Let's kick it out to the nations. No, God had always planned that through this people Israel, he would bring about his Christ that would bless the nations. He would save a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So they're not plan B. Now, where do we see this in our genealogy? So if you're looking at Matthew 1 and we see it in our genealogy, we see it with Abraham. We just came out of Genesis. This should be easy, right? That what was promised to Abraham? Abraham, in your seed, all nations will be blessed. Genesis 17, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. We see the nations. He, Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. The seed that blesses the nations. We see it in Judah. If you go to Genesis 49, verse 8 through 10, it was promised that Abraham's descendant, Judah, would be a king and his scepter would never fail. His scepter would never end. And then it says, to him will be the obedience of the peoples, of the nations. This one, this king of Israel will rule all the nations. Now there's another, so you got Abraham, you got Judah. How do we know he's the king of the nations in our genealogy? We got Abraham, we got Judah. We also got this real unique thing that happens in this genealogy. In this genealogy, here's the really unique thing, especially in, the, in that Jewish mind, that first century Jew mind. The unique thing is four women, besides Mary, four women are mentioned in this genealogy. And that would have been shocking to them. Four women just got placed into the Christ genealogy here. That would have been shocking to them. We've got Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And were they Jewish women? No, it's two Canaanites, a Moabite, and a Hittite. A little sign, a little glimmer in, the, in this genealogy that our Savior, our King, is not just King of the Jews, He's King of the nations. And He's got them in His genealogy. Now, I just want you to think about that truth and how that's being accomplished today. Think about that truth and how God, how how Christ our Savior is accomplishing this fact. He is the King of the nations. Do you realize that we live in a nation and there's a little remnant of people and we're just a part of it at Grace Community Church. There's a little remnant of people that have an allegiance to a king and that king is Jesus. And we have such an allegiance to that king that if our governing authorities in America make us act in such a way that's in contradiction to our king, we go with King Jesus and not our government. At whatever cost it is to our lives, 
We're willing to go against our government because our government is with Christ Jesus. Jesus has done that in America. And do you realize there's a remnant of people in China that their ultimate allegiance is not to that government, but to another government, to Christ. And God's done it in India. That there's a remnant of people that their ultimate allegiance is not to the Indian government, but to Christ. And he's done it in Russia, in Germany, and all over the world. He's, he's doing this. He is the king of the nations. A people willing to suffer in defiance of their government when their government stands against the government of Christ. It's amazing what Christ has done. In the middle of thinking about unreached people groups and how we need to take the gospel to the nations, amen, but do not forget to rejoice that look at what the king of the nations is doing. He's conquering the world. Jesus is king of all. When this truth is believed that he is king of all, it affects so many things. So let me just mention a few things that affects very quickly. It, it affects, when you see Jesus as king of all, it affects the way you think about conversion. The way someone is saved, the way they're converted is repentance and faith. They repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ. But there's times throughout God's word where the way it describes repentance and faith is one that comes under the allegiance and loyalty to King Jesus. What does conversion look like? My allegiance is with Christ. My loyalties land with Him. He is my King. It affects the way you live your life. We're talking about radical obedience. We read His Word and our King is speaking to us through His Word. And we say, yes, we obey our King. It affects the way we think about the mission of God. Think about the mission of God. Uh, it's, it's to go out into the world. And to your job, and to your school, to your family, and to the nations, and tell them who their king is. Psalm 96, verse 10. It says, it tells us what to say. I love verses that tell me what to say. It says, Go and say among the nations, Our Lord reigns. So Katie's going to go back in a couple weeks to, to Peru. Katie, go back and tell them who their king is. This affects the way you think. About the mission of God. Tell them about their king. Lastly, number five. Christ is revealed to us as the merciful savior of sinners. He's the merciful savior of sinners. Now, most, you know, first century A.D., the time when this you know, book is written, the time when Jesus walked the earth, most, Jewish, most of the Jewish people are expecting a Christ. And they're expecting that that Christ will be a king. But they're not expecting a Christ who would be a king like Jesus. Most of them were expecting it, but not one like Jesus. They understood Daniel 7, the, the son of man that goes before the ancient of days, and he's given a kingdom and all nations will bow. They understand Psalm 2, that the nations are raging but I set my king on the holy hill of Zion. He's going to break the knees of the nations and rule and reign. They understood some of these things about that Christ. But they ignored, they ignored the messianic expectations that we find that he's the suffering servant. For example, 
Isaiah 53. It says that Jesus, that one that comes, that before he takes the crown, he's going to go to the cross. That he, that the one that's going to have the crown forever, he's going to go to the cross and listen to me. He's going to be wounded for our transgressions. He's going to be crushed for our iniquities. He's going to go to the cross and bear the weight of our sin and all the wrath of God and punishment that's supposed to come on us. He's going to bear it in our stead and he's going to die for his people and redeem his people to himself. And then he'll rise and then he'll ascend. And one day he'll return and he'll be Daniel 7 and Psalm 10, excuse me, Psalm 2. So they understood, they expected the Christ, but they they understood this this Christ that would be a political leader and that would destroy the Roman Empire and take over. They didn't understand these Isaiah 53 messianic expectations. Even Peter felt this. Remember Jesus asked Peter, "Who who do people say or who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ. And Jesus said, amen. My father revealed this to you. And yet just a verse or two later, we find out that when Jesus begins to tell him that he's going to suffer and die, that that is not what Peter expected. Not the one that would suffer and die. And so what we're going to see throughout the gospel of Matthew, throughout this gospel, is Jesus helping them understand what they should see from the Old Testament of this coming Christ. He's helping them all the way throughout this gospel and understand that this Christ is a suffering servant going to the cross. And he's the glorious ruler, victorious ruler who rule all the nations. Now, can we see it in the genealogy? Do we see Jesus as Savior of sinner, sinners in these genealogies? And I believe we get a small glimpse into it just by considering the lineup. You know, what's this lineup here that leads up to Jesus the Christ. Let's just look at Jesus' forebears for a minute. And I believe we get a little glimpse into this fact that Jesus is the Savior of sinners. Abraham. Abraham came from a family of moon worshipers, even a polygamist. Jacob, the deceiver. Judah, wicked, sold his brother, his younger brother, into slavery. You remember it? Keep going in the genealogy. Tamar prostitutes herself to her father-in-law. Rahab, a prostitute. Verse 6, right there in the middle of verse 6 says, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Why did it say it like that? Why did it say by the wife of Uriah? Why not just say Bathsheba? Oh, just forget about that sin with Uriah where David committed adultery and murdered her husband. But it goes out of the way to say that. Not just Bathsheba, but the wife of Uriah. Solomon, polygamist who forgot his God. Rehoboam, a fool of a king. You can keep going in that lineup of kings that we find here. And it's not a good lineup. You got men like Manasseh that they they offered up their children in child sacrifice to the false god, Melech. And the list goes on. And so the question is, why would the Christ come through such a crooked and debased lineage? Why? Why would he come through this lineage? It's a reminder that Jesus is a savior of sinners. It's not just, I don't mean that every person in that lineage is saved or was saved. But it reminds us that Jesus 
is the Savior of sinners. David Platt said it like this. What are these people included in the... Why are these people included in the line that leads to Christ? And his answer is, for the same reason your name is included in the line that leads from Christ. Solely because of the sovereign grace of God. What a king. What a savior. What a savior of sinners. Now I want to close just by saying a few things. This is an introduction to Christ. An introduction to this gospel. And we'll be here, God willing, for several months. But I want to close by saying something to anyone here and everyone here that's on the fence right now. You're on the fence about the things of God. And you know who you are. You, some of you have, a couple of you have spoken to me about you not actually being saved. You're on the fence, you're thinking about these things, but you're not saved. Or, or, or may, maybe you say that you are, but by your life, it's obvious that you're not. So I want to speak to you who are on the fence for just a minute about the way you think about Christ. Jesus is king. That's true. That's what's being introduced to us here. He's king. Jesus died for sinners. That's true because He's the merciful Savior. He's merciful and He's gracious. So all of that is true. But listen to me. Please listen to me for a minute. That mercy that is available to you, that mercy that's offered up to you, will not be available to you forever. It will not be offered to you forever. You may not make it to the end of hearing the Gospel of Matthew preached. Your life may be taken from you. Christ may return. And that mercy that's offered to you will be done right then and there. That's why the command from Jesus is urgent. It's so urgent. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Believe in the gospel. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 65, he speaks about the mercy of God like God's hands. It says, that, it says that his arms are extended. He says, here I am. Here I am. To those that walk in a rebellious way, his arms are extended. But listen to me. A moment comes when his arms are dropped and you've got no more access to his mercy. Come to him. Come to Christ. Psalm 2 warns us at the end of Psalm 2, it says, kiss the son. Like a subject comes before the king and bows down and kisses the feet of a worthy king. Kiss the son, it says, lest he be angry. Lest his wrath break out against you. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Please come. Get off the fence and come take refuge in Christ and enjoy the gospel of Matthew with us. Ananias told Paul, he he said, Paul, why do you wait? Rise. Be baptized. Wash away your sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. And I want to say that to you here that are on the fence. Why do you wait? God has been gracious to you in so many ways. Even allowing you, allowing you to hear from His words this morning. Why do you wait? Rise. Be baptized. Wash away your sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. And I pray, I pray that you would do that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this glorious genealogy, Lord. We love it, Lord. We love your word. And Lord, we love you as our king. 
Lord Jesus, you are our king. You're the climax of world history. You're the the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, Lord. You're our king. You're the king of the nations. And you're a merciful savior and we worship you. Help us, God, to live lives that make sense in light of these truths. We're your people, God. Help us to live lives that make sense, Lord, that we would be obedient to you, that we would go into the nations and tell them that you reign. Help us, Lord, please. We're your people. And God, I want to lift up to you every soul here, every soul here that doesn't know you, It's on the fence, Lord. I pray that your word and by your spirit, Holy Spirit, that you would prod them and that you would move them off this place of decision making into obedience to Christ. Lord, I pray that they would obey that word to repent and believe in the gospel. Save souls, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.